Well, we are in John chapter 6, folks. It's uh, just uh, going through the book of John week, every week, uh, verse by verse, taking a look at this great gospel. We come to the sixth chapter. We come to the longest chapter. John 6 is the longest in the book. It's 71 verses. And uh, there's a lot of great truths in this passage of Scripture. There will be two important themes as we go through this. John chapter 6, two important themes. The first that runs through this, you will notice, is this is the bread chapter. Bread. 25 to 30 times the word bread is mentioned, uh, both in a physical sense, uh, at the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, and also, I am the bread of life. Look at verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. So when you think of John chapter 6, you think of bread, the bread chapter, because bread is mentioned so often, and it has to do with this discourse mainly about Jesus being the bread of life. The second theme that, or thread that runs through the book, uh, the sixth, sixth chapter of the book of John, is the idea of false believers, false disciples, false seekers, false learners. That's what a disciple is. False, curious followers. That is the theme that goes through this book, this chapter as well. Uh, He starts out by telling them uh, temporal things. They like that. They like the temporal stuff. But then he starts talking about eternal truths at the end of this chapter. And we're told that many stop following him. And that's important. Many people like what he does, but they don't like what he says. And that's the point. He does what he does to draw attention to what he says. They like what he does, but they don't like what he says. Jesus has a way of chasing superficial people away. He does. And that's what you see by his words. His words are very strong in this chapter. And he does not hesitate to tell them, you know, if you want to be popular, Jesus has got it, man. Everybody is following him. This is a chapter where you see huge crowds. And if he wants to keep the crowds coming, he doesn't need to be saying what he's going to say in this chapter. Because you will see, notice verse 60, 660. Therefore, many of his disciples, and when you use the word disciples in this chapter, we're just talking about learners. We're just talking about people who are following, people who are seeking. When they heard this, what he just said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So you got two threads through this. Bread, physical bread, the beginning Spiritual bread, I am the bread of life. And then secondly, you have this thread that runs through false disciples. You see a huge crowd in the beginning. You're going to see that crowd disperse by the end because they're not interested in the hard words of Christ. Sometimes people don't like it when I talk about false disciples, that you can be a false disciple, but that's a reality. You can It's a reality. It's a reality to say that somebody might not be a Christian who claims to be. There are superficial conversions all the time. Superficial followers all the time. 
And Jesus gives that warning. The apostles give that warning. It's a reality that there are tares among the wheat. Always. So, Jesus is, uh, excuse me, John has chosen uh, two miracles in this chapter. These are miracles number four and miracle number five. We have already seen the first miracle, water into wine. We saw the second miracle, the healing of the nobleman's son. In John uh, 5, we also saw the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida in chapter 5. Today, it's the fourth and fifth. He only has seven miracles. The whole book of John is built around seven miracles. This is number four, and this is number five. We're going to see the feeding of the 5,000, and we're going to see Jesus walking on water. Not mentioned in John's account, Peter also walks on water. That's a miracle. But John does not include Peter in his account, but the other gospel writers do. And what he's doing in these miracles is he's setting up the bread of life discourse. That's what he's doing. The, 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 the most popular miracle that most know about is the feeding of the 5,000. And it's mentioned in all four gospels. And so it's an important miracle. But what's interesting about that miracle in John is he actually gives the theology behind the miracle by the bread of life discourse. You just had physical bread. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread that when you eat my body and drink my blood, he's saying, you will never thirst. You will have eternal life. He gives that incredible message throughout this. It's the only miracle, like I said, included in all four Gospels. It's a, it's a miracle that is interesting. It includes uh, 5,000 plus families, 20 to 25,000, most likely. Um, it includes people who uh, are not just um, watching Jesus do a miracle. They're actually participating in the miracle. They're actually eating this created bread that he creates. And so they are participating in it as well. So it's a very unique miracle. And then, like I said, we will also see Jesus calming the sea uh, in this as well. Pointing to, because John's purpose, pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Not Son in a subordinate sense, but Son as being equal in essence. That was John 5. I and the Father are one. Proof of his deity that those who see these miracles, these who read about these miracles and the accounts of these miracles might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So that's very important. Very important, uh, very important miracle, miracles that set up the scene for the discourse, and we will look at that. And it's interesting, too, if you read through the Bible, how food and water, you got food and water both being used in these two miracles— Food is uh, used in uh, places in the Old Testament, manna in the wilderness, um, a quail in the wilderness. People got hungry. You have Elisha, the miracle that Elisha performs for that widow where he um, multiplies food for her as well. Water in the, the Exodus, the, the separating the water. Uh, the Red Sea, so people could walk through it. You have water being provided in the wilderness by Moses hitting the rock and providing uh, water in the desert. And then you have um, 
at the entrance to the, uh, in Joshua 3, before the people go into the promised land, you have the separating of the Jordan River. So, makes sense. You got Jesus appearing. He's God. Now we have a food and water miracle. Same thing. Same thing. And Jesus just shows he is God. Obvious proof that he is God. Look back up at 518. This is the context. This is what that chapter reminds us of. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his Father, making himself equal with God. That's opposition is increasing. That's in Judea, okay? That's in Judea. That's in Jerusalem. The scene changes now when we come to John chapter 6. Now we're in Galilee. Now we're up north, okay? Now we're in the northern part of Israel. You have Judea down here, you have Galilee up here near the Sea of Galilee. So we're shifted locations, all right? In the white spaces there, you have some things that happen. You have about six months worth of activity in the ministry of Jesus that you don't see between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. But Jesus makes his way to Galilee. Galilee is a little less hostile toward Jesus than Jerusalem, where the Jewish leaders are. It's a little less hostile environment up in Galilee. It's a little more rural up there, less populated up there than down in Judea. But what's happened prior to chapter 6, John doesn't record that. He just gives us this as a unit to, to, to make his point. But what's happened in between chapter 5 and 6, about six months of activity you had in that period of time, Jesus sent his uh, disciples out to do ministry, to do the things he did. He sent them out two by two. Uh, In that period of time, John the Baptist gets beheaded between chapter 5 and chapter 6. Herod Antipas hears about Jesus, and he gets real nervous because he thinks John the Baptist has risen from the dead because he's hearing about what Jesus is doing. So that happens in between chapters 5 and 6. And so when you come, so it's, it, Jesus has gone north probably because he doesn't want the divine timetable uh, to be interfered with in any way. It's not time for him to give up his life and uh, the hostility and all of the things going on in the south. He goes back to the north to do ministry up there. And that's where we find him in John chapter 6. Verse 1, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias, Sea of Galilee. If you look at a map of Israel, it's a huge, seven, seven miles long, 13 miles wide, something like that, or, or might have that backwards, 13, I'm not sure, but anyway, big lake. Um, and it's actually called, it's called a sea, Sea of Galilee, Sea of Tiberias, um, but it's, uh, it's huge for commercial fishing and all of those things in the life of those that lived in the north. Sea of Tiberias is also called, John tells us, because Tiberias was a city on the north um, west shore of the Sea of Galilee, a city built by Herod for Caesar Tiberius. And so it was sometimes called the Sea of Tiberius as well. That's why John puts that in there. Um, Capernaum is sort of the headquarters for Jesus in the north. That's his adopted city. And that sort of sits in the very north of the Sea of Galilee, northwest, north-northwest area. But now we're talking about being on the east side, the other side. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side. 
He goes over to the region known as the Golan Heights, the region that was in the Six-Day War with Israel and Syria and years, many years ago. We're talking about the northeast section, the other side, just to give you some geography here. Capernaum's here. You got uh, where Jesus is right now on the other side in the Golan Heights region uh, of, uh, of, of the Sea of Galilee area. And a large crowd, verse 2 says, a large crowd followed because of him. They saw signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Jesus is in a boat going to the northeast side, Golan Heights region, from Capernaum to the Golan Heights region. People are on shore watching him, and they're following him. It kind of goes like that, we're told by the other accounts. They could see him, and they wanted to get to him, and they wanted to see him, and so they're following him. Jesus... um, like I say, he's traveling by, by boat. Um, and also, I would say this, there's a lot of people going to be in this region he's going to because that is a common region of travel to Jerusalem. And I say that point because we're told in verse 4 that this is the season of the Passover. So they're getting ready to have the Passover, so all these pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims, are starting to make their way down to Jerusalem for the Passover. So there's a lot of people, a lot of people are going to be there when he gets there, plus the people that are on the shore, plus the fact that there's a lot of messianic expectation in the air whenever it's the season of the Passover. You can see that in verse 4. The Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. Passover meant messianic expectation, all-time high. Okay, so you've got that in the atmosphere as well. We see in verse 3, he goes, uh, he goes to, he says, and Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So you got the scene, you got Jonas gave us a setting here, you got the idea where we're at, northeast corner, the Sea of Galilee, all these people around, crowds and crowds of people. Jesus understands fickle crowds, though, he really does, you know that, we've seen that over and over again, but there's just... A lot of excitement that Jesus is in the area. Then verse 5, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Jesus, looking up over the shoreline, sees this huge crowd of people. We're told in Mark 6, he has compassion on them. Um. He sees them as sheep without a shepherd, Mark 6 says. Like I said, Mark has an account of this as well. It's late in the evening, Mark says as well. And he addresses Philip. Maybe it's because Philip was the one who was the planner in the group, could figure these things out, how we're going to feed all these people. Good question to ask a guy who's given to detail just to show him that his details don't work. But uh, he addresses Philip and said, maybe the one who, uh, excuse me, addresses Philip here, and he, he says, uh, where are we going to buy bread? Middle of the nowhere, there's no Target, there's no Walmart, there's no nothing like that anywhere. Um, the disciples were saying, send them away, Mark tells us. It's just too much of a bother. We don't have to worry about their dinner. They should have thought of that before they got here. Attitude. Let them go get their own food. This place is desolate, middle of nowhere. And Jesus was doing this, we're told in verse 6, because it's a test for he knew what he was intending to do. 
Now, this is what's going on, folks. He is highlighting a shortage. That's what Jesus is doing. He wants them to verbalize the fact that they don't have any resources. You follow me? He wants them to note no resources available. We have this money that won't do the job. We're going to see that. But he was going to test them because he had a plan already. 20,000 hungry people, no resources to feed them. Uh, what are they going to do? And I just tell you, it's no panic in heaven. And I want, I, this is such a good thing for you to remember. There's no panic in heaven when you are at the end of your resources. That's what I think is so clear in this. A lot of other things are being taught here, certainly the deity of Christ, but there's no panic in heaven when you and I have no resources to do something that God wants us to do. There's just no panic. There's a plan. God's got a plan. It's very important. See, we leave God out of the calculation a lot of times. And that's uh, what you see going on here. Philip answered him, said, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. That's eight months' salary for a laborer. That's not enough money. It's not enough money to feed 20,000 people. Even if there was a store available, there's not, that's not enough. Philip's assessment is correct. Philip's problem is he leaves God out of the equation. And I submit to you that we do that all the time. We do that all the time. It's not about what you can bring to the table. It's about what God brings as a test into our lives to show us that he can provide. I think that's a clear message of this from a practical standpoint. This is how God stretches faith. This is how God puts us in situations like this from time to time when we have nothing to realize that he has everything, that he has a plan, and that he uses those things to increase our faith. This is important. You know why it's going to be important? Because they're going to have to learn this because he's not going to be around much longer. They're going to have to learn this that he provides, that God provides. They're going to have to learn this about, about Christ, that when we're at the end of our resources, he is the one that shows up to bring about a provision. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here, verse 9, who has five barleys of loaves and two fish. If, Peter, if, if Andrew would have stopped right there, it would have been fine. But then he goes on to say, but what are, we, what are these with so many people? And just once again reveals his faith is no different than Philip's and revealing once again that they need to stop looking around and start looking up and start looking to Christ to provide. That's what he wants to do. That's what he wants to do here is to show them the shortage and to show them that they have nothing to do, they have no resources to meet it, and he's the only one that can do that. He wants them to understand that. He wants them to see that. That five biscuits and some sardines, that's what the little boy had in his lunch. Five biscuits and some sardines, a very small amount. Jesus instructs them in verse 10. He says, have the people sit down. Um... He then tells the disciples in Mark's account to go and find out what we have. But now there was, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, number about 5,000, 20,000 when you include everybody. 
And he, notice, begins to uh, involve the disciples, we're told in Mark's account. It says, Jesus took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed these to those who were seated. Uh, Jesus uses the disciples. The bread passes from Jesus' hands, multiplied in Jesus' hands, into the disciples' hands, and they're going to distribute the food. You know, Jesus could have just said, bread... And everybody would have had bread. He could have said bread, and bread would have just shown up in everybody's pocket. He could have done that. But he chose to use men to do this work. He chose to use us to do this labor. He could have written the gospel in the sky. But he chose to use us to be the ones who would take that bread, the bread of life, the message of the bread of life to the world. He chose to use these men to do that. It was important that they see this. It was important that they be involved in this. It was important that they realize it comes from him and they are simply those who are going to distribute it to others. I think that is an important part of this miracle. Jesus took the loaves, verse 11 says, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. This is God creating food, by the way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say um, that, uh, just remind us that the, the disciples are handing this out. They've divided everybody up into groups of 50 or 100 for easier distribution. But what was ever placed into Jesus' hand it was then placed into their hand and it was multiplied. And I just think that is a great thing to think about. Whatever your gift is, whatever your resources are, he can multiply those. He can multiply your influence. He can multiply your feeble uh, efforts. He can multiply your inadequacy and your uh, just your humanness and weaknesses. We don't limit God by uh, by our limitations. We just trust him to take and use us um, and use our influence for for the gospel. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. There were leftovers um, he said, gather up those leftovers. There were 12 baskets filled of leftovers, much more than they started with. Liberal scholars have said that, have explained this away by saying something like this. They said, oh, no, the, the, the purpose of this miracle was highlighting the fact the boy had some food that he wanted to share with everybody. And so everybody else followed the example and got their food out, and they shared with each other. That's what liberal scholars will go to to take away the miraculous event here. Liberal scholars say that it's a message about sharing. In fact, when we see Jesus the next day, they would say, Jesus teaches about sharing, the spirit of sharing, to somehow downplay the fact that a miracle of creation, creating food, has taken place in this scene, proving that Jesus is God. That's the sign. The sign points to his his deity. 
Verse 14 says, Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. They make the connection here. It's kind of interesting. They're making a connection here from, to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Deuteronomy says that there will be a prophet like Moses who will come in the future. One like Moses. So here they're thinking, wow, the second Moses is on the scene. The second Moses deliverer is on the scene. The second Moses who fed us in the wilderness, provided water in the wilderness, is on the scene. And so they equate Jesus with Moses with being this prophet to which they are correct. But the point is, they were perceiving, he was, Jesus was perceiving they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. They, they are saying rightly that he is this prophet from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 18.15. But what they're thinking of is a military deliverer. They're thinking of one like Moses who set us free from the Egyptians. Now he's going to set us free from the Romans. And on top of that, it's going to be Food all the time, water all the time. Our needs are going to be met all the time, just like Moses took care of us. This Moses will take care of our, quote, physical needs. That's the issue here. They are looking for a military Messiah. They are looking for someone who will deal with the temporal problems that they are facing. Jesus did not come to be a military Messiah. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. They did not get that. They did not even want to hear that, as we will find out. But what they wanted was Jesus to be the second Moses who would meet their temporal needs. Jesus is going to make clear to them, I did not come to just satisfy temporal needs. So we see that, we see in, um, excuse me, we see in verse, the end of verse 15, he withdrew again, he gets away from them because of their intention to make him a king. It says he withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. He's not going to accommodate their carnal desires he, he, he's, because that's not why he came. And he's going to give them the full significance of that whole scene in the discourse he's about to do later in this chapter. He's going to tell them all about the physical bread and how he is now the true bread. But he sets up the scene for that discourse that we're going to see later in this chapter. Verse 16 tells us another miracle. Now when evening came, we're talking about the same day, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and we now are going to see the next miracle, the fifth miracle in the book of John. And this takes place the next morning. The disciples are told by Jesus from the Mark account, they're told by Jesus to get into a boat and head back towards Capernaum. Leave the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee and head back to the northwest. He tells his disciples to get in the boat and go there. Jesus does not get in the boat with them. We're told that in John's account, but we're also told that in the other accounts as well. 
It says, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum, the disciples. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they're heading toward Capernaum. The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind, a strong wind was blowing. The Sea of Galilee is 600 feet below sea level, high mountains on the side. Winds blow down, come down those mountains into the water, creating a whirlpool, pretty common event in the Sea of Galilee. They're caught in this whirlpool. White caps are forming. It's a, it's a treacherous scene. The wind is in their face. This is not the same scene you see in the other Gospels where Jesus is asleep in the boat. This is not that scene. This is a different scene, a different boat scene, a different calming of the sea scene than that particular one. In this scene, um, we see they are struggling with the oars. They wrote about... Um, Verse, verse uh, excuse me, 18 says the sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. Uh, verse 19 says, then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. They were frightened because of the sea, but they're frightened because they thought they saw a ghost. We're told in Matthew 14. It's at this time as well that Peter walks on the water. We're not told that here in John's account but certainly adds to the miracle of this event, showing once again his sovereignty over the laws of nature. Feeling helpless, uh, Matthew says, they were still a long distance from the land, and they're afraid of the, what's happening all around them, and they see this ghost, which they eventually realize is Jesus, and Jesus says in verse 20, he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. I want you to understand something about this scene. Jesus sent them into this storm. Don't you think that's interesting? Jesus sent them into this storm. Think about that. Jesus sent them into the storm so that they could realize that he will never leave them or forsake them. You follow me? This is something else they need to learn because Jesus is not going to be around a long time. They need to learn. They need to learn that Jesus provides when all my resources are gone, all my human resources are gone, first miracle. And in the second miracle, they need to learn that, that life is not always smooth sailing. And even in the storms, he will never leave me or forsake me. Uh, there are two great lessons from these particular miracles. I just think it's incredible. Jesus sent them into that storm. It wasn't just some uh, random event. Jesus knew what he was doing. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. This is things you're going to need for the future, guys. You're going to need this for the future in ministry. You're going to need to know that I will provide. You're going to need to know that I will be there. You're going to need to know that... um, I am the one that can, that uses you, that wants to use you, and you are the ones who will be my apostles on this earth, my disciples on this earth. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That's another miracle, actually. It ends up being right at Capernaum, on the, on the docks of Capernaum. Pretty interesting, verse 21. 
So that'd be another miracle, but basically he's shown his power over nature. He showed his creative power in the first miracle. He shows his power over nature. He is God. That is the message clear in the book of John. He is God. They, he preserved their lives through that event to teach them about his protection. Then verse 22 says, The next day the crowd that stood on the side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat. The crowd's there because they spent the night there. That same crowd, that feeding of the 5,000 plus crowd is there. And they noticed that they know that Jesus had told his disciples to leave, and they know that Jesus stayed, and they only see, they, they only see uh, there's no other boat there except one, and that Jesus had not used that boat. His disciples had gone away alone, so Jesus must be somewhere. Where's Jesus? Maybe that's because it's time for breakfast. Who knows what their motivations were? But the point is, he was gone he was, they could not find him, and there's only one boat that's still, one boat's still there, uh, so he didn't, obviously did not use that boat to go away. It's a 29-mile walk around from where they are all the way around over to Capernaum, so many of them may have started wa- walking, but we're told in verse 23 that some other small boats from Tiberias came. They have already heard about what Jesus did in the feeding of the 5,000, obviously, so the crowds start gathering, and they come to where Jesus has performed this miracle on the northeast shore in the Golan Heights region. They're all coming to that area in their boats. Verse 24, when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, uh, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Sounds great, seeking Jesus. Seeking Jesus for what? They're Jesus seekers, but what are they seeking Jesus for? For selfish, secular reasons, becomes evident as we go through this chapter. Interested only what they can be done for them at a human level. They do not want a Jesus that is going to tell them the things that he's going to tell them about dying to yourself, about repenting of sin, about hell and judgment. They don't want a Jesus that was going to talk to them like that. They want a Jesus that will satisfy their needs, temporal needs. Listen, it is a temptation for a church to try to accommodate that in people. You understand? It is a temptation for a church to try to meet people's temporal needs. People come for selfish reasons. People come because they want, they want to feel better about life and themselves. They want uh, their, their marriage to be better. They want their kids to be better. They want, uh, they, they want God to help them get a better job. They want whatever. I, I'm not sure. There's all kinds of wrong motivations for coming to Jesus. And it's temptation of many times in the church for us to say, oh, we got to keep those people coming. Therefore, let's preach a message to them of a Jesus who does those kinds of things for them. That's a temptation. Rather than a Jesus that calls you, calls you to repentance, repentance and dying to self and turning against yourself and turning to him. Telling them what they want to hear versus telling them what they need to hear. Many people, as I was pointed out in our Sunday school class this morning, I thought it was a great quote, if I can find it in my notes here. 
People, there's a quote by Ben, so Ben, this is a good quote, but he says, to have all that God gives and not have God. You follow me? To have all that God gives and not have God. I want what he gives, but I just don't want God to be a part of it. So that was a great statement. And so, these crowds are, you know, I think there's reasons why people follow um, why you have false disciples. I think people like crowds. You've seen, you've seen that. A crowd gathers, and what happens? People start joining in on the outskirts, and you've got more layer of crowd going on there, right? Something about a crowd. A crowd draws a bigger crowd. Everybody doesn't always know why they're in the crowd, but they're part of the crowd. That's one reason. I think another reason is, in this, sense, in this sense here, they like the miraculous. They like miracles. Who wouldn't? They've got to see the spectacular. And so they'll gather for that reason as well. Also, in this context, you would think they're looking for a military messiah. You know, we want our temporal needs met. We want a messiah that's going to get rid of Rome and those kinds of things. There's reasons for false disciples because they, they, there are certain motivations that feed their interest in Christ. And like I said, Jesus will say things that will drive the superficial away. Always does. Um, they were seeking Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? How did you get here? That boat was still there. Uh, we know these guys came by themselves. How did you get here? This is when they get to Capernaum, and Jesus, <laughs> this is interesting, Jesus answers them and said, and he doesn't really even answer them. It's not an answer. He just simply says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. It's more like he's making a statement to them. And he directs their attention to the eternal. You saw signs in the sense that sign was to point you to some reality, and you missed that. You, you saw that sign, and yet you did not draw the right conclusion about that sign. And your reason here is a temporal reason. You're here because you ate of the loaves and we're filled. And you want another miracle. You just want another miracle. It's different. Some, the wise men seek him, don't they? The wise men were seeking him. Why? To worship him. Wise men seek him to worship him. These people seek him for temporal reasons. Verse 27, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Let me give you something better. Superficial uh, stuff drops away. You're putting all this energy in the, for the wrong things. He says for the trivial, for the, you need to move to the eternal things. Verse 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Because that's what he said to them in 27. He says, um, you need for, for God has set his seal on the Son, on me, the Son of Man, the, the, the Messiah. Therefore, verse 28 says, 
They ask what works he should do. Verse 29 says, and Jesus says, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. It's not that Jesus is teaching them about works, salvation. That's not his point at all. His point is that it's believe. You believe in him who he has sent. It's no work that you do. It's trusting in the work that he has done. It's trusting in the work that he has done, believing in the work that he has done. This is not talking about divine sovereignty here. This is talking about human responsibility here. Divine sovereignty comes later in the chapter. Look at verse 44 and 65. Verse 44 and 65. This is divine sovereignty. 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verse 65. And he was saying... For this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. That's divine sovereignty and salvation. We're not talking about divine sovereignty back up here in verse 29 and 28. We're talking about something that you're called to do, and that is to believe in the works that Christ has done. The finished work of the cross. This is the human responsibility side of salvation, that I must believe that I must trust, that I must not seek to earn God's favor. I must seek, I must believe in what God has done to provide me a way to have favor with God in Christ. All God requires is faith. It goes back to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. He says there, um, I was trying to earn my salvation Uh, I was a good person. I was from the right tribe in Israel. I I was a very zealous man. As far as righteousness goes, I tried to keep the law. I worked the right way, working, 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 all this moral effort that I would put out there. But Paul says, I count all that loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness in my own, but that which is through faith in Christ. It's a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. That is what Jesus is pointing them to. Trust in that work, not your own works. God's worked work. That's what he requires. So John 6.35 sums it up. We'll look at that next time. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and who believes in me will never thirst. I'm the manna from heaven, he's going to say. I'm the bread that comes down from God. I'm not this temporal stuff. I'm the eternal, eternal one from God. That's where your faith needs to be, and that's our invitation to you this morning. If you don't know Christ, he is the true bread of life. Father, thank you for our time today. Thank you for these truths that we've been able to examine Um, these two great miracles that prove that Jesus is God, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the one that we are to put our faith and trust in. Two miracles that exalt Christ, make him great and majestic and powerful. And we're so grateful, God, that we can know him through faith. We can have righteousness through faith, not our own works, but his work and trusting in his work alone. In Jesus' name, amen.